Hi, hi there. This is Lisa Weiner. This is the Narrative Medicine Podcast, and I am so, so thrilled to have my dear friend, the Reverend Mara Dowdle, with us today. Hi, Mara. Hi, Lisa. It is such a joy and honor to be here on your podcast with you. You know, I've been listening to, um, for everybody listening, if you just Google Mara Dowdle sermons, you can get years of incredible uh, downloads, and it's amazing to hear your voice live. I've been just enjoying listening to you so much as I prepare to talk to you. Um, I kind of wanted to dive right in with this. uh, One of the things that's so, um, so amazing about you as a spiritual leader is your rich connection to art, politics, literature, song, and each of your sermons, you know, you pepper in so many amazing quotes and different, um, from different traditions. You know, I wrote out just sort of for fun, I think it was a sermon from May 2013, How the Light Gets In. Oh, yeah. Just a ton of references, but in this sermon alone, you quote Mary Poppins, Leonard Cohen, (laughs) You sing from Gloria Gaynor. You, <laughs> <laughs> I want to talk about your singing, and maybe we'll get you to sing a little oh bit. Oh, my goodness. I had forgotten that, Lisa. Thank you for you, reminding um, me. You quote Rachel Naomi Remen, uh, mm. Brene Brown, Ben Zander, and the list goes on. Um, and I wanted maybe to just jump in with a quote that really was from that sermon that really was so beautiful to me where you quoted saying sometimes a person needs a story more than food to stay alive and that's Mm. um, Barry Lopez so I thought we could maybe jump from there and just talk a little bit about the role of story in sustenance or the story and spirituality and just your Mm. experience with that. Oh, I love that quote. Thank you for reminding me of that, Lisa. That sermon now feels like 30 million sermons ago, so it's it's <laughs> wonderful to revisit that. Um, oh, gosh. I feel like, um, you know, in the spiritual life, stories play such an important role in many different ways. Like, you know, many of our founding great religions are story-based. You know, many of them have a founding story or they present a series of stories Um, In my tradition, you know, as Unitarian Universalist, part of what I love is that we can really claim and name all of those stories as sacred stories, which I love and draw on them. Um, But for me in my own journey, I have found stories, I mean, I find a lot of value and richness in those ancient stories, but I'm always drawn to hearing other people's stories and sharing our own very personal accounts of our lives, because I think um, that's how we connect. I mean, just I'm thinking about how I've hatched different friendships, maybe even our friendship, Lisa, you know, where we tell each other the story of who we are, um, or, you know, that's how we come to really know each other more deeply. And I think it's how we get a sense of empathy for each other um, and an understanding of who each of us is. And, um, you know, I think it is such a point of connection to sit down and listen to someone else's story. 
you know, it's a way of saying, I want to know more about who you are on this planet and what you are about. Because you're now, you were not always, but you're now in a, uh, in, in a faith community. I wanted, you know, many people are not really familiar with Unitarianism and you, um, (laughs) yeah, in one of your sermons, you talked a lot about how the the Simpsons make fun of Unitarians a lot, which I had kind of forgotten. (laughs) Yes. (laughs) Pop culture. Maybe just a brief description of um, the Unitarian Church and your um, your journey to to find yourself there. Sure. So, um, Unitarian Universalism itself as a religion is about fifty years old, but um, it's it is was formed from two parent traditions, Unitarianism and Universalism, who came together in the early nineteen sixties, and in turn, each of those traditions were progressive um, and, in some senses, kind of heretical voices in the Christian church in America in the 1800s, but their theologies go back even further. Um, And universalism really came from a place of affirming that um, God or the divine is love, um, and that all humans would be saved and are worthy of saving, which I think is such a powerful idea. Um, and Unitarians really affirm this sense of the oneness of divinity. Um, and I'll hold myself back from going further into <laughs> a boring explanation of 200 years of Unitarian Universalist history, but um, or I guess the historians would beg to differ with that little description there. Um, but um, really, as it is today, it's a tradition that recognizes and recognizes and draws wisdom from many different sources, the world religions and the Christian and Jewish traditions from which we ourselves originally come. Um, And we're also a tradition that finds meaning in our life experiences and in poetry. um, And we have no particular creed, but invite people into a life of searching for meaning um, and making the world a better place and building beloved community. So um, you use, you know, I I think our ethos is a lot about kind of creating and finding heaven on earth. And um, so so that's that's a bit about us. And I had grown up as a UU. Um, Many people in our congregations actually come into the faith later from other traditions, like they come out of something else. Um, but I grew up as a, a UU in Philadelphia, and um, as you know, Lisa, I was not planning on this as my life path. I um, was a political person and living in Washington, D.C. after I finished college um, in the early years of the Bush administration um, <laughs> around the time. <laughs> so hard to imagine that, but yes. Yes. <laughs> it feels like a long time ago and yet not and surreal. Um, but it's so it's interesting actually we're talking about story because a huge part of my call to ministry was I was working for a US congressman and um, you know, I was doing everything from responding con- to constituent mail to, you know, working on some policy and um you know, helping do all the various things that congressional staffers do. But for me, one of the most compelling parts of my job was when constituents would come in to lobby for particular bills, 
they would always come with a story, Lisa. You know, they would not be schlepping to Washington, D.C. from Texas for no reason just to say this is a good bill. No, they came with a story about, you know, how this bill would change their life or why they cared about it. Um, and they were often, um, I was a healthcare staff for, for my boss, so a lot of this was legislation around treatment for illnesses and funding for research. And I heard a lot of stories from people about, um, their lives and their journeys, and I would let those meetings go on way too long and then realize I you know, was going to get in trouble because I should be doing something else. Um, and that is part of how I realized I wanted to um, be in a job, be in a role where, um, which I realized ministry really could be where part of my very job is listening to people's stories and then in preaching getting to share stories. So um, that's, well, that's how I got to to conversation and to the the role of the compassionate listener in a one-on-one setting comes across loud and clear um, in in all of your work. I want to go back to the the role you had listening to um, healthcare stories in a political setting in a minute. But first, I wanted to talk a little bit about uh, theology and story. I was you know I, you were one of the first people I wanted to talk to. Well, you're like the first person I want to talk to about almost anything. But when I started the podcast, it was so clear, and I was so um, it made so much sense that it turned out you had actually devoted. I guess you have themes to spiritual themes to the month in your church, yes. in and you had a whole month devoted to story last year in 2015 and you um you do heavily uh you bring in a lot of different voices when you are speaking whether it's ancient uh traditional spiritual texts or pop singers ranging from mumford and sons to whoever (laughs) it was really (laughs) but this one you really you paused and you talked a lot about story core David, I say, and what he did on head. And one of the things that came out in the debut narrative medicine conference in Kripalu that I will continue to make uh, a major focus of this program Mm. is the role of spirituality in healthcare, the role of spirituality in story, because the role of listening to somebody's story is a really ancient one that has always been in faith. Mm. And I was hoping a little bit of context to that because it is something that we think about as something that happens in story core or the moth or other kinds of kind of literary endeavors like the oldest way we knew how to communicate and to heal yeah absolutely i love that lisa um and i think you know for me there's this way in which um story and you know again like i feel like how People love StoryCorps and people love the moth. And I feel like because it taps into something ancient in us, something very deep and human, um, you know, and I think people need an outlet for that humanness. Um, But I often think there's this way in which in our current life we separate out, you know, spirituality and spiritual leaders from you know, medicine around our bodies, or, you know, that's sort of the Western way or the way it has been, Um, you know, but I love that aspect of narrative medicine, as I understand it, that it bridges those worlds a bit, and I think story can be that bridge, but this got me thinking, Lisa, that I have had a few encounters with 
doctors or other medical people, since I've gone into ministry where I have come out of them, they've been at like very important moments. And I've, my concluding takeaway was, wow, that person ministered to me. You know, like I went into a doctor's office and I received ministry. Like that was, you know, there was a spiritual healing that took place. Um, You know, and I think it's that ancient stuff, Lisa, of like being, having someone bear witness to us and having someone deeply listen to us, which can happen in a healthcare setting, um, you know, or if we go to sit with our rabbi or, you know, sit um, with a minister or sit down over a table at Kripalu and try to hash through something. Did you want me to say more about that? Or I wasn't sure if you were jumping in there. No, I just maybe wanted you to define a little bit when you said that person is ministering to me. What does that mean? Oh, I think what I mean by that is that when someone takes the time to really show up and tend to, um, you know, the root of the word minister is to serve. But I guess what I'm meaning is that part of ministry is kind of caring for and healing for and tending the deepest part of us, like, um, you know, our soul or our spirit. Um, And I think it's sometimes, it's like one of those things that you know it when you experience it. Um, You know, and I think we can minister to each other. You know, I feel like sometimes I've been ministered to, like, by a really great server who shows wonderful hospitality and care. (laughs) Um, But... um, you know, I'm thinking of, you know, um, that capacity. I think deep listening is at the heart of it. Mm. You know, like I think so much of tending to one another is if we actually give someone else our full attention. Um, so, but it's been funny now to be in ministry and to be like identifying in various healthcare professionals, like they're a minister and they don't know it. Um, a friend, a minister friend of mine and I were joking that we think like the field of lactation consultants, like they're all basically like, <laughs> that's a true, <laughs> I was like, that is a true ministry, you know, cause you're helping humans get through stuff. That's really hard. Maybe that's what I mean by ministry, helping other humans get through stuff. That's really hard. It's a beautiful way of phrasing it. The way it came, it's come up a lot in this work of, as, as I found it is really the role of compassionate listening. And like what um, what qualities and conditions need to be in place in order for someone to be able to listen, for someone to be yes. able to hear stories. And one yes. of the really alarming facts that's very common knowledge among you know people in the healthcare system is doctors on average have something like 18 seconds to come up with a diagnosis when they meet a patient. Yes. And that yes. trust or the kind of ministry dynamic you're, because every time you're talking about this, you keep saying, and they sat down. There's like a, yes. <laughs> that takes that's some minutes. good active listening right there, Lisa. Yes. And they sat down. Right. And how on earth in the way, you know, the pressure that is put on medical professionals now to diagnose quickly, as you're saying, and to move visits along, um, a family member of mine who um, is a physician was talking about over um, the span of a long career how how his visits time had gotten shrunk and shrunk and shrunk and shrunk down to like a 10-minute visit um, yep. and how inadequate that is. 
um, because this person's practice of medicine, I don't know how they would describe it, but I, I get a sense of this is someone who can listen and, and hear a story. Um, Lisa, what do you think? Do you think there are voices going against that? Or do you think like the draw, like the structures are so powerful that it's hard to, to press against them? Against the time crunch? Yes. I think that there's like revolution happening. And one of the, um, I mean, one of the things that inspires me most about the field of narrative medicine, which while in, you know, in many respects has been the, the rallying cry of narrative medicine was defined by Rita Sharon, who started mm-hmm. the program in narrative medicine at Columbia University um, about yeah. 15 or so years ago. But really, narrative medicine is as old as, you know, the, as old as anything we could possibly think of. It really is this practice exactly. of listening. Uh, Lewis, Mel Madrona, yeah. and many others, including uh, Rachel Naomi Remen, who you quote and totally. talk about a lot, have been talking about this concept for many decades now. And yes. I was just, uh, we've already confirmed the Kripalu program for 2017. And every single time I sit down and look at what's happening in this field, more and more programs are cropping up. So I think that there is a, you know, going to be a, there is a rallying cry amongst patients, and I think amongst caregivers, doctors, nurses, healing arts uh, practitioners, people in the ministry, there is so much willingness and passion to do something about this and to create some space. So I see a lot of hope. I think the area of how this yeah. will impact in terms of um, our insurance and those kinds of yeah. tech of how doctors' lives are run is something that's, you know, on the policy side of things. But I see a lot of a lot of passion, and I think the role of somebody like you and bringing you directly to med schools and doctors and really coaching on how to hold the space. Yeah, yeah. Has enormous potential and is really inspiring to me because there's a great willingness there. It's not like doctors don't become doctors because they want to spend five seconds talking to people, you know, these are right, right. Well, and I remember, you know, I'm thinking back to my own experiences with illness. And, you know, at least, you know, I had this, this blood disorder when I was 12. And I think that my own deep sense of the importance of this kind of compassionate listening and storytelling in both ministry and medicine dates back a lot to encounters I had at that very formative time with physicians. Are you willing to share about that just a little bit more? Yeah, yeah, yeah. So when I was 12, I got this very serious blood disorder that um, probably had like an autoimmune aspect to it. um, But essentially, my bone marrow stopped producing blood cells. And so I found myself like right down the scary rabbit hole of um, having this major illness. You know, the clinic where I was treated was a hematology oncology clinic, so I was with other really sick kids. Um, And, um, you know, there was, and ultimately I was so lucky I had a a drug therapy that was, had just recently been developed that helped me go into remission and I've been well since. Um, But, when I think back to that time, some of my most profound healing moments, Lisa, again, within that were a few people in that journey who took the time to just listen to me, whether it was me sharing about, 
you know, symptoms I was having or things that were hard being in middle school at the time while having a serious illness. Um, one of them was this most amazing nurse in the clinic that would sit down with me and listen to my stories and, you know, give me like social advice of how to handle something with my best friend. Um, and, um, you know, and the doctors too. And the doctors, I think, more so even with my parents took time with them. And, um, you know, I think there's something about, um, there's something to that. Yeah, I lost our thread from earlier, Lisa, but. Right? Hmm? Your mom was an English teacher, is that right? Yeah, so my mom was an English teacher, which probably shaped my journey quite a bit. Um, Tell me about yeah, that. Yeah, so, um, well, you know, it's interesting. I was never a student of my mother's, but I think reading was just in the water of our house, like books and literature and um you know, and my mom did encourage my writing. And I think that um, at different points, I've been able to use that as a healing tool as well. You know, now I kind of write in this kind of professional weekly toward public speaking way that you um, started us off least with, with those sermons. But um, it was interesting that after that experience I had of that illness, um, my family and some of my my medical people encouraged me to write this all up into like a book or a story and I did yeah and I don't know where it is I don't know what happened to it um so you had really a very intimate experience of narrative medicine and I did I had narrative medicine before we talked about it so I think for me, it's like such like I'm so thrilled with your work around this, Lisa, and it's such a no-brainer to me because I think I've my own life experience has like relied on it for for my own survival and healing, for it's sure. Really, um, well, thank you for sharing all of that. It's so um, um, powerful and inspiring to hear about your personal story, both from your own pretty harrowing medical experience as a child and then diving into like the world in a political way to a more inward spiritual, um, you know, journey for your, for your life's work. Yeah. Yeah. The things that you um, (laughs) talked about a little bit is when you were talking about StoryCorps and David, I say, uh, when you were the, the power of, I believe his, his Ted talks all about how hearing somebody's story can, change their lives, maybe the most important moment in their life and in yours. And you mm. challenged your congregation to explore the role of faith communities in storytelling. And I was mm. um and this I guess was was a year or so ago, um, could just reflect on that certainly in the last, you know, six months, one month, eight months, there are tremendous amounts of very, very powerful cultural stories happening in our society and what do you see as the role of um the faith community in sort of processing these stories and sharing these stories um what a good question well i feel like we need spaces in our world in our culture in our we need spaces to tell stories and we Mm -hmm. do lots of informal storytelling but 
like I feel like cultural institutions, to the extent that they can be space holders for storytelling, can be really important. You know, because I think we all have that hunger to hear stories, and we put on NPR, and we listen to StoryCorps and The Moth. Um, but I feel like, you know, having space in school and having space in faith community is really important. And I think something that's important about storytelling in our faith communities is storytelling can be really hard and vulnerable and it can be helped by having kind of an undergirded, you know, either already prior relationships or a set of agreements about, you know, how we want to be together. Um, And in UU churches, we call this like our covenants. What do you mean by a set of agreements of how we're going to be with each other? So I'm kind of thinking in, like, faith community speak about, like, we might use the idea of covenant, which is sort of an ancient theological term, but often these congregations use the idea of covenant, like a set of sacred agreements, um, to just name how we want to be together. So this is, like, really grainy, Lisa, but, like, when we have small groups get together in the congregation or an ongoing group, that group will often set a covenant for its time together, like how it wants to be together. And sometimes covenants are as simple as, you know, we start and end on time and, you know, let's use listening, you know, listen to each other with respect. Um, But I think having that kind of conversation about how we want to be together is so important for storytelling. Um, Right? Because it can be scary to tell our stories. Um, But I think it's also so important because one thing I've thought about story, especially in like our current political climate, is it's hard to refute someone else's story. I mean, you can do it, but we can get in policy arguments till the cows come home. But there's something about like if you sit down with someone with whom you disagree about a lot of things and you tell them a story about you or about something. It's like a way to connect that can get us past some of that just headbutting we do. Mm. Um, you know, that like divisive headbutting. Uh, Did I answer your question? Oh yeah, that was great. I wanted you to talk a little, this sort of, um, a lot of your role as I understand it is about, um, Mm. in a way, increasing the pause, like a pause in the Mm. business life all the screens around us or in the chaos space where we can listen. Um, And there's this quote that you uh, put out there that I wanted you to, I feel like I'm doing a little pop quiz of your sermons right now. (laughs) I'm glad you're at least telling me who wrote the quote. So that's good. Well, this one, um, I actually, am not sure. I think it's just an old UU thing where don't period where God put a comma Oh, oh, yes. And that's not even a UU. I have to give credit to, to the United Church of Christ there. Um, oh, okay. It was a campaign or something, right? It was, yes. Maybe yes. you can repeat oh. it and just talk about it a little bit because I think it got mumbled. Yeah. Do you want to repeat it or did you want me to? Or Go ahead. So I think this was, it was a campaign of the, the UCC, which is the United Church of Christ. And I think it said don't put a period where God put a comma. Um, 
And I think at the time I interpreted that to mean, and I really resonate with this idea that like the story's not done yet. Um, mm-hmm. And especially, I think this is sort of a, a UU lens on the world. And I think many progressive traditions that like, we're still receiving the revelation. Like we don't, we're still learning and growing and kind of receiving the wisdom of divinity or the truth or that we're kind of in this unfolding journey. Um, And I think sometimes there can be a human tendency to like want to stick the period there and end the discussion. Um, But I, I liked the spirit of that. Like don't go putting a period there. Um, Leave some space. But I loved where you were linking that to the idea of creating more pause, you know, in general, because I think we need more, like if you think about a comma in grammar as taking a breath, um, we need more of those in our way of being as well. Absolutely. And in your yeah. own ministry with your uh, congregation and just your dealings in the world and various conferences you go to, does the how often or how does the topic of healthcare and illness and treatment come up? Is that a big topic for you? Hmm, let me think about that. Well, I think it depends a little bit on what kind of ministry people are engaged in in spiritual leadership. You know, I my first thought is I have so many colleagues that have dedicated themselves to hospital chaplaincy or, mm-hmm. you know, um, hospice chaplaincy. Or so there's some, you know, there we have such a cadre of amazing spiritual leaders that that is the substance of their work, um, which I imagine must be a huge resource for medical professionals that are trying to think about um, narrative approaches, you know, like they have colleagues already in their hospitals who are doing this. Um, But, you know, while I can't say like I've gone to a workshop on healthcare, it's such a huge part of our our ministry, Lisa, because, you know, our parishioners are in bodies and have sickness. And, um, you know, so I think you know, that it's whether or not it's explicit, it's certainly implicit in so much of what we do and so much of our learning. But, you know, I haven't, say, gone to a workshop on narrative medicine, per se. No, 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 I wasn't Um, asking if you had, like, certified yourself in narrative medicine, though I really do. Yep. (laughs) Um, Yes, except come to your workshop next summer, yes. You're going to be featured. It is more, like, how it comes up, what your experience is. Yes. How do you, so much of what uh, I've come up, um, what I've been inspired by and amazed by is the the process of observing caregivers Mm. hold space and care for themselves as they kind of observe suffering of others without really being able to fix or mend or intrude. You must be in that position all the time. Yes. Yes. Yeah, I'm in that position a lot. And I think, um, in a way, I f- sometimes feel like it's a gift of being a minister when, when I am working with someone who's sick or has had a family member who's sick or who's struggling with that. 
by virtue of the fact that I don't have a medical degree, I often feel like that takes off some of that pressure to fix. And Rachel Naomi Remen writes so beautifully about fixing Mm -hmm. versus healing. Um, So, but it it can be really hard. It can be really hard to... um, to journey with people through their illnesses. And certainly I feel like as, as a minister, I just live in that more awareness of the vulnerability that we all have and the preciousness of life. And, um, you know, I feel like I work hard not to take it for granted because I just, through my work and my encounters, like, just I have a certain level of um, closeness and presence to that um, that I think if I worked in something else, you know, if I was still in politics, I wouldn't necessarily. Do you have any, um, maybe advice is the wrong word, but um, for nurses, doctors, and caregivers, any uh, any lessons you've learned from the the ministry to pass on in terms of holding space in that caretaking role? I think those mm. so many of the people that are supported by this work. Yeah. Gosh, I mean, I think for me, a lesson I have always like, that always like um, comes back to me again and again is how. It seems like so very little to just give someone your full attention and Mm. be present, but it can be everything. Like, I am always astonished when someone's, like, the gratitude that I sometimes feel when someone feels like they've just been seen. Um, So I don't know if that's advice per se, Lisa, but I think it's a reminder for all of us where... I don't know. I feel like we feel this pressure as humans that we have to be able to solve or fix or make everything better. But I think um, there's just, it can be profoundly healing for someone to feel like they are fully seen and heard um, and to not forget that, that that is, that can be everything. And then I guess the natural follow-up is how do you do that? How do you, let someone make someone feel seen. Well, oh, isn't part of it that not rushing thing? Mm. I mean, that gets really practical too, and that's back to how in a rush we all are and how we're all on the clock. But I think, um, you know, in order to be fully seen, and you know what's interesting is that sometimes I felt really fully seen. It doesn't necessarily always take a long time. So sometimes I think it's more about the quality of time. Mm -hmm. And, you know, I think that if we take a moment and, like, not have our phones out or not look at the clock or sit down or take a deep breath um, and make eye contact, um, you know, really look at someone, I think that that can make the quality of the time really um, infinite in a way. You know, like, can you think of like when you've really felt seen, um, you know, that can happen quickly as long as um, we're given our full attention. So, um, yeah. And I think sometimes we have to avoid the tendency to jump in with advice 
um, which I know can be, that can be tricky in a medical model where sometimes part of what our practitioners are, they have to give us advice. Um, You know, that's attention, I think. And knowing all that that you know now um, from the seat that you're in and looking back at, you know, the 12-year-old who was struggling with that diagnosis and the fear around, what are some, what would you say to her? What, like, what, what have you learned that or worked for you then that you wish you had already known? Ah, well, you know, I think I had to kind of figure it out as I went. Um, but I think one thing that was hard, and I think anyone dealing with illness goes through this, is that it can just be incredibly isolating. Um, and I think that's in part actually why having other people hear your story can be so important during an illness, because it's just very isolating to be going through something that other people aren't and to be dealing with all these heavy-duty issues that other people aren't. Um, But I think I would want to just tell her to take heart um, and to know, you know, that she's not alone Mm -hmm. and, um, you know, that there are other people who understand And I think I then got that, Lisa, through, like, the people who showed up to really care for me. Um, And I've said this before in in different sermons, but in addition to the medical people who were so amazing, one of my childhood ministers showed up for me. Um, And she was awesome. Like, she just came over and brought lunch, and I felt like I was just one of her parishioners, you know? Um. So that's been a model for me in ministry to try to emulate Marguerite Lovett, the Reverend Marguerite Lovett, who was such a rock star minister to me. That is a um, really special story. Yeah. Um, yeah. There's one last quote that I wanted to, to share, especially, um, and maybe also have you comment. I, I don't, I haven't been to that many um, Unitarian churches, but enough. You do, I think, maybe more singing than most, definitely more like pop. Uh, music singing and you there's a lot of uh, joyful engagement where the congregation speaks up they sing they recite and this is something that you had everybody repeat with you um i believe it was um samuel longfellow and it's uh, (laughs) revelation is not sealed truth and right are still revealed yes and I was struck by this because it sounded, um, to me, almost ominous and serious, but your take on it was so <laughs> playful, and <Yeah. laughs> that was a lot my takeaway from you in general, like such a playful quality to some of the most daunting topics of that life offers. Um, oh, Yeah. Well, it's funny. I think there was a level of playfulness around that because that the phrase revelation is not sealed is like in our tradition, one of these sort of, um, you know, Samuel Longfellow, like sort of like the words of the 19th century, you know, sort of these old words that get invoked to like explain our theology. So I think that you're right. There was a heaviness about them. And I I lightened them a little that day, and it was fun to make the congregation say. Often, as you know, like when I do call and call and response or call and repeat, it's something a little less, um, a little more contemporary, if you will. <laughs> but I think playfulness is good. You know, like what else are we going to do? I don't know. I mean, I just can't. I mean, for me, that's. Um, I think it's 
that's like the joy of life. And I think maybe, again, that's just one of those things from my own experience, like learning about playfulness and as a, as a survival tool. Um, mm. But that even when we're dealing with these very heavy, serious things, like we need to be able to tap into the joy. Um, that's and we could do a whole other podcast on play, which there's such good stuff about that out in the world too. But, um, and actually, can I share one final story, Lise? I know we're, yes, we're getting please. to the end. This is a story about a doctor. And I've, and I share this story, um, when from the pulpit in a sermon about play, but during my illness, um, one of the stories that kind of got famous in my family about this was one day, um, we arrived to the clinic and my dad took me and we saw our very serious hematologist oncologist who was a very serious man, um, so serious that I was sort of scared of him, and he always wore bow ties. He, was, he dashed out of the clinic, and um, at this hospital, all the outpatient clinics were around this large atrium, and he went out into the hall, and someone had given him or the clinic this stash of um, toy airplanes or gliders, and he just started flying them all off the balcony and like kids went with him. And it was this crazy moment where um, Dr. Wimmer was flying planes off and um, like there was something so healing about that in some way. I don't know how to describe it least, but um, to see that playful side of him, um, you know, well, I think that story. Yeah. The rather serious medical narrative. Yeah. Very yeah. Big narrative and that's what um we can all do yeah so you have before we go thank you so much for for making the time and for your incredible work tell us what is what else you have coming up i know you've been doing a lot of writing is there you know what are you looking forward to this year um i am looking forward to a great starting of the year here in Burlington, um, you know, and I think like a lot of clergy, I'm wrestling with how to be a minister and how to be present with my people and my community during this wild and woolly time we're living through in the world. Mm. Um, so um, a lot of my work and project focus right now is thinking about what all those false sermons are going to be um, and and what the work is. And... Um, there are also some really neat, some neat justice stuff happening here in Vermont, um, and I'm excited for, for some opportunities on that, too. So, you know, the work of healing the world is continuing regardless of what's happening, with regardless of who is in office or who isn't in office. So um, I want you almost to repeat that. That feels so good to hear. <laughs> <laughs> Right. No matter what is happening, we still have our work to do. And I think about that, you know, which is comforting, you know, and yeah. So, and thank you, Lisa, for this. This was so cool. Topics near and dear to my heart, for sure. Thank you for being so vulnerable and um, honest and inspiring. It's great to talk to you. You're and welcome. We will talk soon. Okay. Take care. Thank, Thank you. Bye. Bye.